0: Today's devotion, we're in Mark chapter 9, and what we have is a series of, of pretty big events that take place in chapter 9. Remember that chapter 8 in the Confession of Peter, Accessory Philippi, is the turning point. So, so things are really marching towards uh, Calvary here. And um, in, in this chapter, and I believe the next chapter, Jesus is going to make clear predictions regarding his crucifixion. And so he's preparing his disciples for uh, that seminal event. Now, starting in verse 2, we get um, we get the transfiguration, which is one of those seminal moments in the life and ministry of, of Jesus. Um, and we see some parallels with Matthew. Um, uh, Mark goes in a slightly different direction, but he certainly parallels with what Matthew highlights. And that is that, remember, in Matthew's gospel, he wants us to see Jesus as a true and better Israel. So we have Uh, Jesus, his baptism followed by 40 days in the wilderness corresponds to crossing the Red Sea followed by 40 years in wilderness Um, you know and then there's the Sermon on the Mount as opposed to Ten Commandments from from a mountain and there's all these patterns well remember that when Moses goes to the top of the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments there is the presence of God and a cloud hovers over them Um, and he takes three people it's Moses, Aaron, and it's not Caleb. I'd have to think who the other person is, but there's three of them that go up there. So to here, there's three people. Uh, there's Jesus. Well, uh, there's there's uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, and then of course Jesus going up. So and a cloud hovers and all that. But but the parallels also is is that at the foot of Mount Sinai is chaos from the people of God. At the foot in the Mount Tran- of Transfiguration is chaos with the people of God. So the parallels are purposeful. Mark hints at that. He just doesn't develop it the way Matthew does. So let's look at it. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So this is clearly the the divine language, Uh, the brightness, the light, the white, that sort of stuff. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So there's a lot of debate why it's Elijah and Moses. Um, and, and some say it has to do with their manner of death or lack thereof, or their burial, whatnot. Some say uh, one represents the law, the other the prophets, thus all the Old Testament. I I don't know. It is striking that both Moses and Elijah uh, encountered God at the same mountain. Now, Mount Transfiguration is not that same mountain, but it's still um, a fascinating parallel. Um, But the point isn't um, necessarily why these two are here. But we see uh, here in Mark and the others that, that they recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, Peter makes a mistake by seeing them as equals, right? So he wants to set up a tent for all three of them. And the point is we need to see that Jesus is the Son of God and Elijah and Moses are under Jesus. And so they are pointing us to Jesus. In fact, you see the verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them. So that's the same sort of cloud that um, uh, hovers over Mount Sinai um, and, and stuff like that. We, we see the cloud all over the place. And a voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now his language is important, again, you need to see that, no, you don't make a tent for, for these three because they're equal, you make a tent for one because he is superior and that's Jesus. And the voice says, this is my beloved son. This is similar language to what we saw in chapter one with the baptism of Jesus. So even though the baptism of Jesus is only one, maybe two verses, I think it's just one, in Mark's account. He emphasizes what he needs to emphasize, that um, God, the Father, is declaring Jesus as the Son of God. All right. And the only people so far to publicly profess that are the demonized. Right, so, so you have Mark saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then you've got God saying that he's the Son of God. And you have the demonized confessing he's the Son of God. The question is, when will uh, his followers see who he really is? Right? It's the question Mark is asking. Who is this Jesus? And so here we have that voice again. Um, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And, of course, I think the context of that listening is what Jesus just said about his upcoming death and resurrection. And as out of that, that prediction came the uh, call to pick up your cross and follow him. This is my beloved son. You see him in all of his glory revealed, unveiled for you. Listen to him. Well, um, I want to skip that they have a conversation about Elijah and whatnot. But I want to skip that. Go down to verse... Fourteen, you get the story of of Jesus healing um, um, a boy with an unclean spirit, a demonized boy. We've seen a lot of these in Mark's gospel. I suspect there's more of these in Mark than than the other syn- synoptics, let alone John. John didn't have a lot of exorcisms, um, but uh, Jesus comes down, a lot of chaos. The disciples try and cast out a demon of this boy, and it's not working. Um, so. Verse 17, uh, a man says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to. And so Jesus goes up to the boy, and it says, When the spirit saw him, immediately, there's that word, it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rode about, foaming at the mouth. So we clearly see a reaction to Jesus that indicates Jesus is unlike the disciples. Now, he is like the disciples as he's fully man in the incarnation, yet he's also unlike the disciples in that he's fully God as the transfiguration demonstrated for the inner three. And so the father says, um, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And I love this, what Jesus says, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes now again remember the context believe what believe first of all that Jesus is the Son of God that's the key and that's the whole point of the transfiguration of Mark's gospel this is my beloved son listen to him if you believe anything's possible not only can the demonized be liberated but the dead can be raised which is what he's been saying. So the father says, cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. And in many ways, that's, that's, that's the center message of the gospel, isn't it? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? And there's many who are having their doubts, disciples and everyone, and here you have, have a man who I think prays what I, I think we should pray more often, more honestly, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the tension of following Jesus, isn't it? Constantly, the faith and unfaith, belief and unbelief. It's, it's it's a struggle. And I love his honesty before Jesus. I believe you are the Son of God. Help my unbelief, because all I see is is a trial and error and fail, failure. But I believe you are the Son of God. Help my unbelief. And so, of course, Jesus heals the boy um, and... Uh, Um, he he goes about his way. So again, we have Jesus engaging in this cosmic spiritual battle and he comes out of it triumphant. Uh, That is a major theme in Mark's gospel as as we've seen. But then out of that, what we get is the second major prediction of Jesus um, of his death and resurrection. So verse 31, there at the end, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days he will rise and they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him they're still not getting it Uh, even though god himself says listen to him they are listening they're just not yet understanding they're getting there but they're just not quite there yet well then they have the setback where they're going to argue. And there's, there's a few arguments in, in the rest of this chapter. I, I don't want to spend forever looking at, at these arguments. But the first one is significant because it keeps popping up with the disciples. Um, verse 33, What were you discussing on the way? Jesus asked. Remember, the disciples are probably teenagers. You know? They kept silent for on their way they had to argue with one another who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And servant of all and in that context he puts a child in his lap and be like this child what's the point is you have to be you have to be the lowest in order to be the greatest those who want to be the greatest will be made the lowest the last to be first the first to be last all these sort of proverbs that Jesus is known for the point has to do with with humility is the key to greatness which whatever the context what did Jesus say the son of man must go and die. That is the sort of humility he has. And in that uh, humility will come exaltation. One last passage to look at, uh, this is a long chapter, uh, has to do with temptation and sin. Um, I just want to highlight the strong language Jesus uses um, because we all want a Jesus who's nice and fluffy, uh, scratch and sniff sort of Jesus, but we don't like these sort of passages um how convenient Uh, verse 43 if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire your foot causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell if your eye causes you to sin tear it out it is better for you to enter the kingdom of god with one eye than to have two eyes be thrown into hell now here's the one thing no i don't think it's literal second thing i think it would be better if we took him literal than not literal what I mean is, now, if 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 you literally cut off every part of your body that made you sin, you wouldn't have a body left. At the same time, there's far too many of us who are quick to say, don't take Jesus literally here, and and then they forget the point he's making. His point he's making is stop sinning. Stop giving in to temptation. So yeah, if it would be better you cut off your arm, go ahead and do it. Again, I don't mean it literally, but I mean it literally. Um, we have got to take sin. More seriously than than what we actually do, and notice what he says in verse fifty, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness because of sin and whatnot, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. If only I could think of an easy application to make for that 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 last line. Be at peace with one another. If only there were a few examples in 2020 and early 2021 where we weren't at peace with one another. Christians weren't at peace with one another. A nation wasn't at peace with, with one another. But I'm struggling to think of one. Maybe you can think of a few. Main point is, when you see Jesus, you'll see your sin and you'll run from it. So let the transfiguration convict you of your sin and you'll run to Jesus of the cross and find remission and freedom from it. Hope to see you guys here, Lord willing, tomorrow.